think today about the book of Habakkuk, obviously as we begin this book, we've got to kind of set a context and provide for us a setting so that we know what is all transpiring during the life of Habakkuk and exactly what it is that has troubled his heart. And so as we think today about God moving in mysterious ways, I want us to think about what Habakkuk has looked at and saw. And obviously it has certainly troubled his heart and So when we think about the context of this book, we need to know that Habakkuk prophesied or he preached about this during the ending of the Assyrian Empire and basically the rise to the one great empire of Babylon. Uh, This was taking place as far as if you want to date, like a number to put on it, between 605 and 586 B.C., Obviously, as you read throughout the Old Testament uh, in the chronological order of this writing, there was certainly some unsettledness in the land. There was political instability. There was seemingly no adherence to the law of God. They had basically set God's law aside and began to worship uh, idols and set up their own gods. This is interestingly coming after a time of which Josiah would have restored uh, Israel back to proper worship before the Lord. Uh, You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 22 to 23. But Josiah, if you remember, had discovered the law of God and had worked and God enabled him to kind of bring back a revival in the land. And as as you read that uh, account in his life, you come to find out that it was short-lived um, we're told in Second Chronicles chapter 35 that the king of Egypt, Necho, had come along through Megiddo area in coming to Judah around 609 B.C. And he kind of opposed Josiah at Megiddo. And we're told that Josiah was hit uh, in battle. And when he was hit, he told his fellow troops that his wound was very serious. He must have known that he was not going to make it. So they, you know, moved him to a respected place, and as we read, that Josiah died. But I found this passage also interesting in Jeremiah, and I want to read it to you. I'm not going to ask that you turn there, but you can write it down for reference. But I want you to see how quickly Israel, or in that area, responded to the death of Josiah and how they acted after that. Jeremiah preaching along the same time in Jeremiah 22 verses 13 to 19 says this, Woe for the one who builds his palace through unrighteousness, his upstairs rooms through injustice, who makes his neighbor serve without pay and will not give him his wages, who says, I will build my house a massive palace with spacious upstairs rooms. He will cut windows in it and he will be paneled with cedar and painted in bright red Are are you a king because you excel in cedar? Didn't your father eat and drink and administer justice and righteousness? Then it went well with him. He took up the cases of the poor and needy. Then it went well. Is this not what it means to know me? This is the Lord's declaration. But you have eyes and a heart for nothing except your own dishonest profit shedding innocent blood and committing extortion and oppression. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him, saying, Woe, my brother, or woe, my sister. They will not mourn for him, saying, Woe, Lord, or woe, his majesty. He will be buried like a donkey, dragged off and thrown outside Jerusalem's gates. 
That's the way they treated Josiah, who had restored worship and brought attention back to the law of God. And immediately after his death, in other words, Israel responded by his burial, not even crying out, Whoa, our, our leader has died, but rather drug him like a donkey and threw him outside the city. That's how they responded. So Habakkuk, seeing this before his eyes, prayed and inquired of the Lord because the condition of the people was rotten, terrible, horrible. They had turned from God. They had forgotten Him. They had set Him aside. And, and we see what Habakkuk began to say in verse number 2. It says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Habakkuk had inquired of the Lord because of the condition of which he was seeing before him. And the way that this implies to us in verse 2 is that this is a prayer that Habakkuk had continually been praying for the people in the condition that he was seeing. He looked out and there was injustice, there was wrongdoing, there was oppression, there was violence, there was strife, there was conflict. And the priesthood had often had, was corrupt and the political system was corrupt. They were restricting the righteous and justice was being perverted. Oh God, why are you allowing this? This was his prayer. And, and as a prophet, as, as one that spoke the word of God to the people, he was praying before the Lord. You know, oftentimes when we read the prophets in the Old Testament, they were speaking to the people, but uniquely here in Habakkuk, we are let in on the conversation between the prophet and God. And he says, oh Lord, how long? How long? Why would God allow all of this? Why would He allow it to continually go on? Why not come and smash unrighteousness and do away with evildoers and allow righteousness to prevail? Where are you, God? Is basically what Habakkuk was praying. So our first heading, of which we will only have one heading today and two subheadings, but just simply this, God moves in mysterious ways. The first heading I want you to note is just simply Habakkuk's agony. Habakkuk's agony from verses 2 to 4. He asks two questions. Notice verse 2, he says, how long? And verse 3, he says, why? How long and why? How long is it going to last, and why is it even lasting? Why hadn't you responded? The first question, how long, implies that the prophet had indeed been spending prayer already before God, pouring out his deep concern for the circumstances of his day. He had returned to the Lord to pray about this situation. Finally, he has come to the point that he is just utterly confused at the silence of God. Any of you ever been there? Maybe. Maybe you've not been there, but that day will come. Where you're really pouring your heart out before the Lord and you feel as though God is silent. You know, I don't want to I, I don't want us to miss the fact that that I think Habakkuk has uh, a proper motivation in his praying because he is 
exemplifying righteous indignation for the moral decline of his day. He's concerned for the way society is going. I think that's positive. But also in his tension of wrestling with what he sees, he's wondering why not God has been responding to this. Why, why, have, why have you been quiet? You know, David prayed something very similar in Psalm 13 verse 1. He prayed, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David prayed similarly. David's confusion, David's agony was real just like it is here for Habakkuk. And it's almost, as we, as we think about this and as we read this, it's, you know, it's almost as though we see Habakkuk just disagreeing with how God has delayed his activity or even how God's been patient. The prophet has continually sought for relief, sought for an answer, sought for God's intervention. He is witnessing this society falling apart in terms of its moral foundation. Everyone seems to have forsaken the Lord, His covenant, and His people. They are striving for their own self-advancement, personal pleasure, self-promotion. Boy, sounds a lot like maybe where kind of conditions we look abroad and see. The priesthood is no longer preaching the Word of God, but rather preaching Reader's Digest. Political leadership is no longer asking what God's standard is, but rather going along with their own set of rules. And what Josiah had revived was short-lived. And Jeremiah said they just tossed him out of the city without even respect. But what we know to be true about humanity is not changed. The heart is corrupt, evil. Without God, it is dead. My mind got to going back about Israel's history. We've preached through Judges here. And you remember in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, after the wilderness generation and all, the Bible says that the whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and them another, after them another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works He had done. And it was that generation that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 to 9, that came to Samuel and said, Hey, we don't want God. We want a king like the rest of the nations. We don't want to be different. We, we don't want to be set aside. We, we don't want to be God's people. We want a king that's going to go out in front of us and fight for us. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, No, we want a king over us. What else do you expect to happen when you put God to the side? In Habakkuk's day, we could say again with just some description, there was culture of immorality, there was greed, deception, hatred, injustice, hypocrisy, oppression, and on and on and on. Consider our headlines today. Global jihad and terrorism, mass murder, abortion, slavery, human trafficking, racial and economic oppression, political unrest, spiritual deception, moral insanity, and social disintegration. That's just some of the headlines we hear. 
in many ways, a lot of people's listening to that and hearing that and sort of kind of like Habakkuk and think the world is just spinning out of control. That's why we titled the message as we did, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Church, we're not the first that have wept over a society. We won't be the last. Notice what Habakkuk said here in verse 3. He said, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yet, yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention is arising. Therefore, the law is ignored. That, that verse 4 is kind of where I want to part just for a moment. The law is ignored. Some translations say paralyzed. That word ignored or paralyzed there, it just simply means to become ineffective. Ineffective or, or the society became numb, so to speak. What do we think is going to happen when we set aside the standard of God? What, what do you think is going to happen when you set aside the standard of God? Now, I know that in Habakkuk's day, the same terminology of which we would use regarding governmental uh, systems and philosophy probably were not yet deemed to be a particular word. But in our day, we have recently walked through times that certainly exemplified that of what we would refer to as statism or, you know, you could put any other kind of word on it you wanted to. But when society is the reflection of its leadership. When you look at the leadership of our day that has set aside the standard of God, you cannot expect to get anything else. And that's what Habakkuk was seeing unfold in his day. You know, when you look at the political situations in our day, um, I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that when you read the Bible, you, you come to understand that there is a biblical mandate for the governing systems of our day, and even the preachers of our day, the preachers are instructed to preach the whole counsel of God. And, and the government that has been implemented, just like in Habakkuk's day, in our day have two functions. And that's to defend its people and punish criminals. It is not to rewrite laws to define what a man and a woman is. It is not to educate your children. It, it is not to tell you what is right and what is wrong. God's Word does that. God's Word has set the standard. God's Word has set those details. The state does not get the right to play God. Hands off the family. You don't get to define that. Hands off uh, training my children. You don't get to do that. Hands off telling the church what to do. You don't get to do that. For the state or the government to fail to conform to the law of God is its own attempt to play God. If it can, if it can be your Savior, then where will your loyalty be? I know I'm meddling this morning. They tell us that they have the right to tell our children what they can and cannot be. They'll pay for all that. 
They want to control your health, control your children, control your money, and on and on and on. They are not the ruler of the world. God is. And whether they know it or not, I want us as a church to be the prophetic voice in the day that says, God has spoken. When God's word is ignored, like verse 4 says it happened, brothers and sisters, you can't expect anything else. Now certainly we could go down a track record of reasons why culture ends up the way it does. The reality that we see before us in Habakkuk's day is that the priesthood and the political powers had simply went astray. And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, how much longer? Why have you not stepped in? And it's, it's, I, I wonder this morning, maybe, maybe you came to church just with a burden in the quietness of your own heart as you've been glued to Fox News or whatever this week. You know, you begin to think, Lord, how long? How long? And in our own minds, we begin to play newspaper exegesis and try to figure out how all this is going to work out or how we think God should step into the play. But I want to remind us through this series of sermons at Habakkuk, just what Habakkuk got reminded of, is God is always working whether we see it or not. God has a plan that is much grander and much greater than any of us could ever work up. And even when God appears to be silent and not working, He is always up to something. And I almost entitled the message, but I didn't want it to be taken the wrong way. But I almost entitled it, verse 5, where God says, I'm doing something in your days and you wouldn't believe it if I told you. <laughs> almost entitled it, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. <coughs> But here you have a man who loves the Lord. But he's weighed down because he sees the moral degrading of, its, of the culture. And he wants the Lord to step in. He wants the Lord to do what only God can do. But I think there's three things we take from just looking at verses 1 to 4. You know, thinking about what God has done. He says, verse 4, And justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Sometimes God does appear to be silent in our life. But even when he's silent, I don't want us to forget also this little word providence. God brings about unexpected providences. In other words, God works a lot of times in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And the third thing, I think, too, which we're about to see is that God often uses things to bring about His will that completely blow our minds. <laughs> so we see Habakkuk's agony. 
I want us to see secondly this morning the Lord's answer. Verses 5 to 11. The Lord's answer. Verse 5, again, he says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. You know, you look at verse 5 and you think, this is how God responds to him. And, and I wonder, I, I kind of felt, I felt this. I, I felt that in my heart in verse 5, you know. Because these days you think, man, God ain't working. And it's like God, if God really just opened heaven and spoke down to you, said, just look around. But, you know, I'm doing something, but you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. You know, maybe you came here with a heavy heart, a heavy burden, walking around, so to speak, carrying a wagon full of burdens that have weighed you down, and you feel like God's not active in your life. But brothers and sisters, we have to remember that God is always working. And Romans 8 is very true, that God works together all things for our good and His glory to those who are love Him and called according to His purpose. This is what God is doing in our life. We may not can see all these things. But as the late R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule in all the universe. God is always up to something. You may not can see it. You may feel like you're at the end of your rope. You, you may feel like there's something in your life you've been praying on and praying on and praying on. And, and brothers and sisters, we must remember in verse 5, God basically tells Habakkuk, look, just look around. I'm about to do something, but you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. For our faith has its ups and downs, don't it? Some days, you know, it's, it's kind of on a mountaintop. The other days, it's stretched thin. Sometimes we feel like it's just at the, at the bottom of it all, like it's been trampled on or... Or worked over like, like God's just brought you through a valley and you feel like everything just been stretched. and It's not as strong as it once was, so to speak. You're just weak. Can I just remind you this morning that, that God may be doing things behind the scenes for, in your life. You wouldn't even believe it if he told you. And let me say this, because this is where I want to drive it home. We look out at the world, at society, and we think, there ain't no hope for this place. I don't know about you, but I've read the end of the story. And God's working. We wouldn't even believe it if he told us. Have you forgotten how powerful the gospel is? Do you not think it is the power of God that changes enemies and makes them his children? Verse 5, the Lord responded and spoke to Habakkuk. And it was not the answer he expected. I think Brother Johnny said we should have time of testimony after great is our faithfulness. I think we all might would say God has answered our prayers in a lot of ways that was not the way it was expected. And for Habakkuk here, it wasn't the way he expected it to be answered. Because notice how God answered it in verse 6. He said, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, 
that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Wow! <laughs> oh boy. I I'm raising up Babylon. I I'm raising up this great fierce army as my instrument of divine judgment and justice against Judah. You think Habakkuk was expecting that? He probably thought, or he probably hoped that God would let him preach a sermon that was just going to, you know, bring about revival, so to speak. Just have one of those things that he could tell about for years, right? So what I'm pointing out to us is, is the fact that, that you know, you look, at, you look at a nation, and we look at it, and we see the moral uh, decline, and we think, how, how long is such a thing going to last? Or how long can... Folks, it can't. As I heard one uh, commentator say, stupidity is not a winning plan. It will fall. Because it has nothing to stand on. There is no truth in it. And God uses such things that in our minds would not be usable or the right way to go, but thanks be to God that the unfolding of His perfect will does not rely upon my suggestions. But rather, He's worked it all after the counsel of His own will. Which means I can entrust myself, my family, completely to Him. So God says, I'm going to raise up this group and I want you to note the description here. I want to give you several little things here from verses 6 down to verse number 11 about this military group. Uh, verse number 6, I want you to see how they are hostile. Hostile. Verse 6, they're hostile. Notice it says here in verse 6 that, uh, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. That term fierce means, uh, from what I understand in the Hebrew there, it just paints the imagery of like a savage beast of an animal that just goes around and attacks anything and everything. And the picture that uh, we are to bring to our minds from reading that term fierce is to see the Babylonian warriors like a, a, a beastly animal who is fierce in the sense that it's hostile to everybody. They just go around like a savage animal attacking any and every single thing. And then that term impetuous means, uh, in, in the original language, it just refers to its speed or the efficiency at which it accomplishes the task at hand. So not only is it a wild, savage-like animal that is almost uncontrollable, but when they enter into a city, the, the devastation that they bring happens swiftly. Boy, that had to be a great answer to his prayer what you think God's going to raise up these people who are fierce and impetuous basically this army takes whatever it wants because it has the power to do so and then, then notice verse 7 not only do we see that they're hostile but verse 7 we see they're, that they're haughty you can say prideful verse 7 they are dreaded and feared their justice and authority originate with themselves in other words, they were a law unto themselves. They felt like they answered to no one higher than them. They had their own 
system of justice, their own rule of law. They didn't recognize boundaries of other nations. They didn't recognize any other territory. They were arrogant. They were haughty. They were prideful. And that in and of itself had caused a fear to be in the hearts of the surrounding nations. And God says, these are the people I'm bringing your way. So they're hostile, they're haughty. Verse 8, they're hasty. Look at verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Faster than leopards and more ferocious than wolves. I don't want no part of that. That's a pretty, uh, I would say, pretty devastating description and combination that Habakkuk is receiving. You know, Jeremiah even described this army. He said in Jeremiah 4, verse 13, Look, he advances like clouds. His chariots are like a storm. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. That's what Jeremiah said. In other words, when they came in, their conquering happened so quickly that the victims that they were conquering had hardly any time to respond. Then notice verse number 9. Not, not only are they hostile in verse 6, haughty in verse 7, hasty in verse 8, but they're very harmful in verse 9. Notice what he says, all of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. That, that term there, violence, implies physical harm. In other words, this military group sought to inflict the greatest harm on their victims. In verse 10, we see they were hardened. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture that the, you know, you see the words mock and laugh. It indicates that their attitude was so hardened toward opposition and war. They didn't care who you were. They laughed at you. They, they thought you were nothing compared to them. They laughed at their opposition. Kings and rulers and fortresses were easily taken down by these soldiers. They knew precisely how to conduct these, uh, I guess you could say, uh, successful sieges against any city. Whatever defense had set itself there, they, they were headed that way and they didn't, ha they didn't beat around the bush about it. Verse 11 tells us that then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. In other words, they trusted themselves. They were determined to conquer, but guess what they trusted to conquer? Their own strength their own skill, which made them guilty before the true and living God of the universe who is sovereign and controls and upholds and rules all things. They, they didn't acknowledge Him, which is why I would encourage you to see what happened if you go read Daniel chapter 4. <laughs> because the very ruler was made to eat and graze grass like a wild beast for several years until he realized who indeed was the true God. So, verses 1 through 11, here we are. You may think now, as you know, when you kind of come to the end of a sermon or so to speak, you say, well, so what? what what's the deal? What do we get from this? Well, I want to 
encourage you to think about just a few things here. Number one, under the so what. History is under divine control. History is under divine control. Look back at verses 5 and 6. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. Look, look at verse 5. God says, I am doing something. Who's doing something? God is. Look at verse 6. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Who's doing something? God is. Who's in control of the unfolding of history? God is. Who should we trust that has a divine plan for this universe? God. You may be wrestling with some type of unsettled certainties in your own heart, and I want to encourage you to reach out to the one who has set it all in motion. I've told you this illustration I don't know how many times. Some of you probably could tell it better than I could by now. But I heard uh, Dr. Fred Luter tell a, a story one time. He was preaching on the sovereignty of God. And he said, you know, he loved 007 growing up as a kid. And he said he watched that show over and over and over. And as he watched it, he said, you know, James Bond never got flustered or frustrated any time something seemed to fall apart. And he said, I just always wondered why. This man is so just constant, you know. He just never seems to be baffled. And he said, the older I got and the more I thought about it, I found out why he never got that way. And it's because he knew who wrote the script. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning. You need to know who has written the script. You need to know who's in control. And it's God. We trust Him. History is God's doing. History is God's plan. Trust Him to do what he said he was going to do. And it's killing me not to get in chapter 2 right now. <laughs> because there's one verse that just, ooh, just makes you want to shout, where it says that all the earth will be covered with the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but I believe that this morning. I believe the gospel is powerful enough to rock a civilization, to change it. To turn it upside down. If God can take 12 fishermen or 11 and one tax collector, whatever you want to do all the stuff. If he can take that, who the Bible says they were not learned men, and through their devotion and courage in the gospel, rock a civilization. Why can't he do it through us? We have this defeatist mentality like Washington is controlling history. They are not. God is. Putting political stuff aside, you who are weak and weary this morning, God is controlling your life too. He who sustains the universe by the word of his power also knows exactly who you are. He knows you. Not only do we think about history as under divine control, folks, I, I want you to know that man's power is temporary, but God's is eternal. Man's power is limited, but God's power is limitless. I, I want you to know that man's power is confined to space and time, but God's power is not confined at all. 
we don't need to forget this. He started it all, he's controlling it all, and it bringing it all to an appointed consummation. Not only do we understand that history is under divine control, but you need to know this, that history follows a divine plan. We, we don't believe in just so happens. There's a divine purpose for it all. Isaiah 46, 11, when he was talking about calling Cyrus to bring Israel back, he said, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, and surely I will do it. I'm glad the Lord don't ask me my suggestions. I'm going to trust his. You know, I was, I don't know if you've ever heard of William Cooper. Some of you probably have. If you're, I love hymns, so sometimes I, I try to get as much information on the backstory of a hymn when I uh, can. But William Cooper, and it's spelled C-O-W-P-R, I think, he wrote a hymn entitled, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And just a little bit of his story real quickly. His life is said to have been filled with heartache, with sadness, with depression. So much so that he was driven to insanity and admitted into an asylum. And while he was admitted into this asylum, God, moving in mysterious ways, he worked by, through this doctor who shared the gospel with him. William Cooper was converted. The bout with depression helped lead him to write more poetry. Then he was eventually released, and after he was released from the hospital, he met his best friend, guess who that was? John Newton. And John Newton helped encourage him to take his poetry and put it as a hymn. Go figure, right? God works like that? Yes, he does. So through his bout with confusion, despair, and sadness, he took pen and paper and put into a poem this hymn, which goes like this. I'm not singing it, just reading it. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He, plans, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds, of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Listen to this next line. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. How many of us are guilty of doing that? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. For God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain in His own time and in His own way. Charles Spurgeon said, there may be times in our life where we cannot trace the hand of God, but yet we can always trust His heart. Would you come to Christ and trust Him? For in Him you will find rest for your weary souls. Let's pray.